this morning. Um, not, not because I, I'm not enjoying the book of Ecclesiastes, but the, the best way I, I was thinking about it this week, and the best way I can think about it was I remember as a kid, so the church I grew up in, um, there, was like, there was like four or five boys. We were all the same age. We were all good friends. Um, it was like, you know, I don't know, we were like eight or nine years old. And I, somehow, collectively, all of our parents sort of like went crazy and would allow the four of us, five of us, whatever, to sit in a row by ourselves with no parents. And all the dads would just sit right behind their kids, right? And so about every three minutes, a dad would reach up and pop, you know, and just like, and then, and then we'd all quiet down. And then he'd just like slowly roar and then pop. And that's kind of how I feel like Ecclesiastes. Like about every five minutes, we get just sort of this smack in the back of the head, right? Like it's a good book and it's encouraging and it's really challenging, um, but it does, feel a, it does feel a little heavy at times. And so this morning we are going to um, do a, a little bit more celebrating, I think. Um, and so... Um, I, I'm just, I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad that we could all gather together on Christmas. Everything about this day is so beautiful and so God-honoring, um, you know, down to the lights and the presents and the food and the family. And like, that's what we've been talking about, right? In Ecclesiastes, just the simple things of life. This is what God has created us for, to enjoy our family, to enjoy food together. But there is a good reason why we are all here and why we have cut that a little bit short this morning, right? Like we set all of that aside and we got dressed, and we got our kids dressed, and we gathered together, and we have come here. Because those things are good, but the better thing is to come into the house of God and to worship him, right? To bring all glory to the name of Jesus. And so that's why um, I think it's good and it's important that even when Christmas falls on a Sunday, that we would set, we, we might not get to open all of our presents, and we might not get to sit at the breakfast table and eat as many cinnamon rolls as we wanted to, because we need to get ready, and we want to come to God's house and worship him together as a church. Um, and so I think this is good, and I think it's appropriate, and, and I'm glad that you guys were all able to be here. Um, one of the, the biggest blessings, I think, that Christmas brings us, that a lot of the times I forget about, and maybe you have too, is just that we are actually, like, that we get to be on this side of history. That we know Jesus was born, that we're looking back and remembering. And we're not before the birth of Christ. Can you imagine, just imagine with me for a minute, let's take a, a quick tour of Old Testament, and just imagine, right, Adam and Eve are created, and everything is good, and everything is perfect, and they are with communion with God, and he is with them, and on earth, walking beside them physically, like the way that we walk together, like what better situation could a human being be in than to be in that situation, right, they're with God anytime they want, communing with him, there's no barrier, there's no nothing, right, perfect communion, and then they make the ultimate mistake, right, God only tells them a few things, be fruitful and multiply, right? Tend to the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Rule over the animals. These are the things, right? And they, because they didn't rule over the animals, right, they are tricked by that animal and they become more like the animal in their sin. They're trying to be like God, but they become like the animal and they sin. And Genesis 3, I, I can't even imagine like what Adam and Eve are feeling when God comes and is walking and he finds them and he knows that they have sinned. And they're standing there in the most amount of shame I could imagine, right? And they're, they're, God is staring at them. And what does he do? He gives us what is called the first gospel, right? The proto-euangelion. He says to the serpent, cursed are you for what you have done. I put enmity between you and the seed of Eve. And what? He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. 
So even in their sin, there is hope. God says to them, somebody is coming. The seed of Eve is coming, and he is going to crush this serpent. The one that tricked you, the one that brought you into evil, somebody's going to defeat him. So you can imagine the story goes on, right? And Cain and Abel are born. And you've got to be thinking, Adam and Eve have got to be thinking, all right, there's two of them. Well, one of them is going to do it, right? The seed of Eve, these are, this is the seed of my loins. Here they are. I've got two boys. Which one of them is going to be the one to come along and crush evil? And Cain, instead of crushing evil, does the opposite of that. He crushes his brother. He crushes something good that God has made. And it only gets worse from there, right? Chapter 4, we meet this weird dude named Lamech. And what does he say? I kill people when they wound me. Cain was cursed seven times. I'm cursed 70 times. He brags about the fact of how evil he is. And we read and you think, what? man, it didn't take long. And humanity is just like spiraling downhill fast. This is getting really ugly really quickly. And at the end of chapter 4, Seth is born, right? And we think, oh, okay, maybe. Okay, here's another. Maybe, maybe Seth is a hero, right? We're going to have this ultimate battle between Seth and Lamech or something. And he's going to win. And then you flip over to chapter 5. And this is probably all of your favorite chapter in the Old Testament, right? You know what Genesis 5 is? If you don't know, look at, look, open your Bibles. Look at there. It's just a list of name after name after name. And we, read, we see these and we're like, ah, I'm not reading that. Do you know how important Genesis chapter 5 is? generation after generation after generation is born and do they defeat satan seth is born and he has all these kids and he dies and then seth's kids and they are born and they live this long and they have all these kids and they die and then the next generation they're born and they live this long and they have all these kids and they die and generation after generation after generation is born and none of them defeat satan right every single one of them dead dead if you never understood why Genesis 5 is here and what it's trying to teach you, they're not doing it, right? The seed of Eve is not conquering Satan. They're losing. Every generation is losing one after another after another. And we get to chapter 6 and we hear it is as bad as it could ever, ever be. This is what he says in Genesis chapter 6. Oh, somebody. <laughs> That's good, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find it. Can he find the verse I'm looking for? <laughs> no, God says, look, the intention of man's heart is only evil continually, right? That's what, when God looks at his creation, this is what he says. It's not just, oh, like, sometimes the things that he does are evil, but the intention of the thoughts of man's heart. Like, deep down, not just even the things you think, but the intention of your thought. Because we've all had an evil thought that we didn't intend to think, right? Something just flashed, oh my goodness, I, wh how did I think that? Why would I think that? Lord, forgive me, right? The intention of their thoughts is only evil continually. There, it can't get worse than that, right? It just can't. There's no, humanity has never fallen below that status. That is horrific. And then Noah comes along, right? 
And Noah is a man of God, and he believes God, and he has faith in him, and he builds this ark, and Noah actually survives, and the world is completely wiped clean of all of the evil that's going on, and Noah steps off the boat, and God even uses similar language with Noah to almost bring us back to Adam. What does he say to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Wait, when we read that, we should say, oh, maybe Noah is the new Adam. Maybe he's going to be the one that conquers evil. And his family is now going to, he's got a clean slate. He's a good man. He has faith. He's going to bring about a world that worships God. And what does Noah do? He plants a vineyard. He gets rip-roaring drunk and passes out naked in his tent. Because he's a sinner. Because he stands face to face with evil and he fails. He doesn't step on the head of the serpent. He allows the serpent to bite him, right? He fails in the face of evil. And what about Abraham, chapter 12, right? God says that through your seed, the entire world is going to be blessed. And we look at Abraham. Maybe this is the guy. And Abraham sells his wife twice, right? Twice. How many women, how many of you are sticking around after the first time your husband sells you to another man, right? Twice he does this. And then he also has a child with Hagar because he doesn't wait and trust in the Lord. He is a man of faith. He is the father of Israel, right? He is, a, he is a man that we should admire, but he is a sinful man. And so his son Isaac comes along, and Isaac doesn't really do much of anything, right? Everybody just does things to him. Someone goes and finds Isaac's wife for him. His sons trick him. Everybody just doing stuff to him all day long. He's not the guy. He's not blessing the world. He's not conquering evil. He's just sort of sitting there. And his sons, Jacob and Esau, and we see their sins throughout their life. And then we have Joseph, and maybe he's a contender, right? Because he does some stuff, and he seems to be a good guy, and he falls in the pit, and he comes out. And we have all of these sort of ideas and, and, and connections with Jesus, and we think maybe that's the guy. But then Joseph lies to his brothers, and he tricks them. And there's 400 years of slavery, and then Moses comes along. And once again, it's just a cycle. Maybe he's the guy. Moses murders a man, right, and hides him in the sand. Moses takes the glory from something that God does, and it, he's not even allowed to go into the promised land because of it. What about Joshua? He's the one who leads him into the promised land, but Joshua doesn't trust in the Lord. In fact, he doesn't consult the Lord, and he gets himself into a lot of trouble when he's conquering the land, right? The judges, right, and we have Saul, the first king, and man, that guy didn't do anywhere close to good. But here comes David, right, and God picks David, but adultery and murder and Solomon, and we've read about Solomon's failures already in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it just keeps going. Generation after generation, the nation of Israel is saying, we need somebody to come and stomp this serpent. Where is he? Why isn't he here? I would argue that Daniel is probably the closest Old Testament representation to Jesus because we have all of these ties back, right? Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is faced with, tempt with the temptation of a forbidden food, and he passes, right? Daniel is temptation. I mean, he, he is, he's being called to rule over the animals where Adam and Eve failed and didn't rule over the serpent and are tricked by it. Daniel conquers the lion in the lion's den, right? There's so many things, but in Daniel's visions, what does Daniel see? The son of man coming down, right? And it's not him. Even though he is a good man, and even though, and we know that somewhere along the way when we must, he must have been sinful. We don't really see it in the book of Daniel, but it must be true. Because he's not the one. He's not the Messiah. And so for 6,000 years, right? Just waiting, or 4,000, whatever, however old you think the earth is, right? There's, there is generation after generation, thousands upon thousands of years, where Israel is looking back to that promise that God made 
to Eve and to Adam, and he said, there is one that is coming that is going to crush the head of that serpent. And I don't know about you, but if that were me, like, I would start to lose hope a little bit. Like, Lord, you said he was coming. I mean, why wouldn't Noah have been it? That's as bad as it gets, right? The intention of, of every man's heart all the time is only evil. Like, we need him. If we ever needed him, we, they needed him then. And so we get to look back, and we get to remember, but there was a whole lot of people who had to look forward. And so that is something I think that is really important for us to remember, because we have a blessing that they didn't have. We're not waiting on him. We're remembering and we're rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has come. So let's think about then the story that Tyler read to us earlier out of Luke chapter 2. So I'm sure that this is not the first time you've heard it in the last month, and I know it's not the first time you've heard it in your life, right? This is the one that most people read. We like to read Luke chapter 2 because it gives us, I think, the most amount of detail into the coming of Jesus. And there's one thing that I would like to focus on this morning when we think about this. And that is that if, if we were in charge, we would have done things a little bit differently, right? Because we read this story and we think, my goodness. Like, poor Mary, poor Joseph. Can you imagine the ridicule that those two young folks, like, experience? Not just around the birth of Jesus, but, like, they're probably their entire life. They're claiming not only that Mary became pregnant before they were married of an immaculate conception, but that the baby that was born to them is actually the Son of God. If somebody came in here and told you that this morning, that happened to them, what, what would you think? This person's a little bit crazy maybe, right? Or this is a really convenient excuse to try and cover up a sin. Or whatever, all the different things that we would think, but we, we probably wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I believe that wholeheartedly. I accept it without, without question. It's not that they lived in a very different time. It's not that they didn't understand how people got pregnant. People understood. They knew. Joseph understood and knew, right? People like to say, well, they just, you know, people didn't know. Joseph wanted to divorce her, right? Because he understands how people get pregnant, right? And he understands that it wasn't him. And so there is just all of this sin or, or this idea that people are thinking that there is sin going on in their life when it's not. And they most likely are just being ridiculed and rejected by everybody around them. You see, all the evidence points elsewhere, but God is not concerned with convincing us. And that, you see, the reason we would do it is because we want to try and convince people. When we meet a non-Christian, we don't just say, look, repent and believe. Jesus is, is, is the Lord of this entire universe. We, well, but what about this? And we, like, we want to try and show them and give them evidence and prove to them that the, that the thing that we believe and the thing that they don't believe, that, that, that that's the right way to do things. Um, I think God did it this way because nobody would look at this and be like, oh, yeah, this, takes, this makes total sense. That, that's why I'm going to believe it because it's completely logical. That's not how God brings us to faith. He brings us to faith when he grants it to us. We're given faith. We believe in him. We are followers of Jesus, right? It doesn't make sense to us all the time. Wait, I don't get to be selfish anymore? I don't get to just do whatever I want? That doesn't make sense. My, my brain and everything about me is just telling me, like, I just want to do whatever I want to do all the time. And now you're telling me that I have to do the opposite of what my natural inclination is. 
And this doesn't make sense to us. And so God is doing this in a way that when we look at it, it seems kind of crazy. And it seems kind of upside down and backwards. Why wouldn't he put Jesus into the house of a high priest so that people would listen to him? So that he would have respect and clout because Mary and Joseph, these guys are, they have nothing, right? They're just very, they're poor, uneducated people. They have nothing to show. There's nothing necessarily all that great about those people. This is just, this is who God chose. God chose to bring Jesus into the world in a lowly stable, in a manger, in a family with no power, no respect, no honor necessarily, not, at least not in the world's eyes around them, right? It's not that they're bad people or he chose the most worthless people in the world, but he's, he chose people who you and I would think of and we look at and say, that's not who I would have chose. I would have chose this because this makes a whole lot more sense. But this is the way that God brings Jesus into the world. And you can imagine, right? Things don't go the way Mary and Joseph expected them to. Right? When they got engaged and they're betrothed to be married, do you really think this is what they thought their future was going to be like? And probably not, right? And this to me is like a huge lesson for each one of us, right? Is that things oftentimes do not go the way that we think that they should. And if we had a choice, we would do them differently. But God is doing things in this world exactly the way he wants them to be done. And for us to fight back against that is not really all that smart, right? For us to, what we should do is look at the things that are going on around us in the same way that Mary and Joseph did and say, look, I don't understand it. And I don't really, maybe don't even really like what's happening here, but I'm going to believe in you, God, and I'm going to place my faith in you because you are the one in control and you are the one orchestrating all of these things. Jesus arrived on earth exactly as God intended to him and did exactly what God intended for him to do. You see, it's really important that we don't stop at the birth of Christ, right? Because if Jesus had just come to earth as a baby for a visit, became a carpenter for 30 years, and then at 30 years said, okay, like, this is who I am. Let me tell you a few tricks. Here's 10 ways that you can be a better follower of the law, and here's three ways that your marriage can be stronger. I'm out, right? Good luck. It's not really helping us, right? How many different people throughout human history have come and said, this is the right way to do things, and this is the wrong way to do things? We don't necessarily need someone to come and tell us the right and wrong of our life. We already know that, and we don't do it. We don't do the right thing. In fact, we do the wrong thing a lot. What we need is what Jesus was, not just a moral teacher, not just somebody to come, oh, the reason you guys aren't following the law is you just don't understand it. Let me explain it to you a little better, and then you'll be able to follow those 600-plus laws that God gave to Moses. That's how you're going to follow them perfectly. You just weren't, you just weren't getting it. No, we, we get it. We understand. We know the things that we're not supposed to do, and we find ourselves doing it Anyway, you see, we rejoice at the birth of Christ because of the death of Christ. Because I'm, I'm fully convinced that throughout the Old Testament, when we see, you know, when Jacob wrestles with the angel, if I get to heaven and God says, oh yeah, that was actually Jesus, I sent him, and he's the one who wrestled, right? Because that story is a little ambiguous. Like he's, it's an angel in one point, and then it's God in another point, and who is he really wrestling with? And I wouldn't be surprised if this is not the first time that Jesus physically stepped foot on the planet. This is the first time that he comes and is the sacrifice for our sins. And this is why we are rejoice over the fact that he is born and that he lives a perfect life 
and that he dies because he did something that we could not do for ourselves. Look with me at Luke chapter 19. Just flip over a couple chapters. This is a very, very familiar story. We even have a children's song about it, which I will not sing. Sorry. If my voice was better, maybe I would, but it's, it's not. It's not good. Luke 19. Did I say 9? I'm sorry. Luke 19. Um, Luke 19, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, down and, uh, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone, into the, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus doesn't know who Jesus is, right? He doesn't even he have a clue. He's heard, maybe heard some stories. He wants to see this guy walking by, climbs up into a tree. Jesus calls him down, and what is his response? Lord, behold, Lord, right? He, it's not, what happened here? Jesus just walked by him. It's not like Jesus gave a dissertation about who he is and what he believes and all this stuff. He just, all Zacchaeus did was see him and this is what faith looks like, right? This is what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost. He finds Zacchaeus hiding in a tree, calls him down from that, and Zacchaeus is granted faith and just says, Behold, here's the Lord. And he repents, and he says, I'm going to give away all the stuff. Anybody that I've wronged, I give it away. Now notice, Jesus doesn't call him to give his stuff away. Jesus says, say, if you're going to be saved, here's the things that you have to do. In that split moment, and we don't see it, and it's not written out, but there must have been faith granted to Zacchaeus. Because he doesn't know him. All he does is see him. Jesus calls him, and he says, behold, it's the Lord. Here he is. He doesn't give his stuff away in order to be saved by Jesus. He is saved by Jesus, and he gives his stuff away. Because he wants to honor the God whom he has just met, whom he has just declared. He sees Jesus. He calls him Lord. And he immediately wants to bring glory to him. Jesus tells us he, didn't, he wasn't born to be a cute baby so that we could have Christmas and, and give gifts and all of the things. That's important. And that is God honoring, right? This is good that we meet together and that we give each other presents and that we, we, we gather together and we have good food and good family, and this is all good and God-honoring. But without this part, that's kind of all, that would have all been worthless, right? All of the stuff that we talk about. If Jesus had not come and done what God intended him to do, which was to seek and save the lost, what we would have is just another guy, right? Just another guy who told us right and wrong. But God does something very different. This is the last verse we'll look at, 1 Corinthians 4, 8. 
Paul tells us, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich, and without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now I understand that Christmas time is not always a joyous time for everybody, right? A lot of people suffer during this time of year. Maybe they've lost a family member recently, and so they're reminded of the fact that that family member is not there. Maybe there is stress from a myriad of different places. Maybe people are just sad because everybody else is happy, and they, they're, they're not, and they don't have a family that they can share these times with. Paul tells us here, if that's you, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, you're talking about all this joy and all of these things, and that's not, that's not my life. Christmas is not joyous for me. This is not something that I enjoy. Paul tells you very clearly, you have all that you want. You have already become rich. You see, in Christ Jesus, we have everything that we want. That's why when we come together for Christmas, I mean, my kids don't understand this, but we're trying to teach them this as they grow up. Like, it doesn't matter how many presents are under the tree for you. None of those things matter. Those are just icing on the cake on the fact that we have Christ as our Savior. We have everything that we could want. We are rich and we are reigning with Christ in the kingdom of God. We have wealth and power that this world does not know about and does not understand. It doesn't look like the wealth and power of this world. It's the wealth that we have reigning with Christ together as his brother or sister in himself, right? We are, we are siblings of his. God has called us his children. We are a part of that family and we reign in the kingdom of God and we have give, been given eternal wealth and eternal power in God's kingdom. And so the question is, what, like, what on earth are we worried about? Why would we worry? And so I'm telling you this morning, if you are feeling overwhelmed, turn to Christ and he will bring you peace. If you are feeling Saddened in this time, in this holiday, turn to Christ and he will fill you with joy. If you're feeling stressed or scared or lonely, turn to Jesus because he will give you a peace that you would never, ever know. You'll never know it from anything that this world has to offer. I'll close with this. A lot of the times we don't have because we don't ask. If you're suffering this morning from any or all of these things, some combination of them, ask the Lord to remove those things. Ask the Lord to give you peace. Ask the Lord to give you comfort and joy, and he will give it to you. Ask for a gift that is truly life-changing. Because as good as the gifts may may be that you got from your family or that you're going to give, none of those things are as good as what God has to offer to us. Ask God, and he will give you peace, and he will give you joy in life in Jesus, right? In Jesus, our Savior who was born. And that's why we have gathered here today, to remember that, but to remember his death and resurrection. He came, right? He came to do just that, to save every single person who is willing to repent, to bow down, to ask him for forgiveness. He has brought salvation to everyone who has asked for it. So we should praise God, right? Because Jesus has come. He has accomplished what God has called him to do. And we are reaping all of the benefits of that. 
He has given us his righteousness. He has given us his holiness and his glory, right? Not, nothing that we have ever done to earn these things, God is just giving us these things freely. And so that's why we rejoice. That's why we are here this morning to say, praise Jesus. We're so happy that he has come. We're so happy that he has been born. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you. Because without Jesus, we would be nothing. And without his death and resurrection, we would be nothing. Lord, what a glorious gift that you have given to us. And so we are so thankful that you have given it to us and given it to us freely. Just like Zacchaeus, we saw you, you granted us faith. We said, behold, here is the Lord. It's nothing we did. It's not that we're smarter or better or anything like that. But Lord, you have, just, you have granted us faith and we are so happy and so thankful for this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.